Caprio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In our ongoing series on Women, Peace, and Security and Resolution 1325, we've looked at the past and how the agenda has evolved. Now, we'll look at more recent history and to the future. When Sweden was part of the UN Security Council, it pushed a women, peace, and security agenda. Now, Norway will be joining the Security Council starting in January 2021. What can a small country like Norway contribute and accomplish in a forum like this? To help answer that question, I'm talking today with Louise Olsen. Louise is a senior researcher at PRIO and coordinator of the Gender Research Group. Her research examines gender equality aspects of armed conflict and its resolution, and explores the normative developments related to gender mainstreaming and the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace, and security. If you haven't yet listened to episodes 10 and 11, I would recommend doing that first. There you can learn a little bit more about 1325 and how it came to be in my conversation with Torun Trigestad, as well as listen to Major General Kristin Lund talk about her career in the Norwegian military and with the UN. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Uh, we've been doing a podcast series celebrating the uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 because it's the 20th anniversary this year. And last week we had a big celebration, uh, which you were also a part of. Uh, the last few weeks and months, there's been a lot of activity and debate and celebrations, and Norway especially has been very engaged. Now these celebrations are sort of coming to an end. So I'm just going to start with a question. Um, what do you think some of the results are that came out of this anniversary that could be relevant for research, either research you're doing now or in the future? Have you been inspired by anything, maybe? Yeah, I think many things. And then I think before I even stop there, let me take like a short step back, just see something how I also see sort of where we started from, because sometimes I get the question of sort of why aren't we moving along further and why haven't we come further? Um, but I think that when I started working in the late 90s, it was a very limited number of articles published. And also, for example, I did a research review on gender and peacekeeping, and there were like a handful of articles and, and, and policy briefs. And what was even more of a challenge back then was that there was limited interest, there was limited access to particularly sex disaggregated data and information, and particularly in that was relevant for mainstream research. And also that there was assumptions that women and gender didn't really matter for, for armed conflicts. So one of my first professors, actually, he, he really didn't understand at all what I was doing. He came around, around quite quickly, but uh, it was definitely a challenge back then. <laughs> but uh, so over the last years, it's sort of the, the research has basically exploded and feminist research has really led the way. But now with the, the increased access, particularly to uh, sex disaggregated data, uh, quantitative studies are really moving quite quickly testing and developing existing arguments. And I think what is also important there is that they're also placing these results in the broader context of conflict and conflict resolution. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So for instance, a new data set by Desiree Nilsson and Isak Svensson at Uppsala University, there they, they have collected a large data set on when and how civil society groups are involved in promoting peace. And this can also allow us then to place the contribution of women's organizations in a larger picture. So what this shows is that women's organizations are active in 50% almost of all uh, 
resolution efforts involving civil society, yet when we look specifically at peace negotiations, then women only hold a seat at 5% of the cases. So it can really give us a sort of the broader overview when we talk about women being excluded, what that means very precisely and where we could go sort of more targeted actions. And I think, so uh, one thing that really came out of this anniversary was the the call by the Secretary General to, to have a, a gender data revolution, as he actually calls it, in order to move forward with this targeted actions on women, peace and security implementation, and also sort of from that then develop uh, also evidence-based uh, policies. And I think one area where that will be particularly relevant is exactly this related to, to women's uh, power and political roles, because here we're also seeing data that is not only sort of disaggregated but sex, but also over very long time periods, which was something we lacked for a long time. And, and having data systematic over longer time periods, that means higher quality. So for example, Sirian Dalum and Turvik, they just published an article with global data over a 200 year time period. And that shows that uh, women's participation actually improves the chance for civil peace. And another, I think, really critical article using the same approach is by Webster, Chen and Beardsley. And they use uh, over a hundred uh, year time period of data, which shows that women's political rights actually improve during our conflict due to social change and women's mobilization. But we lose these uh, advances if we don't have an awareness in, in sort of institutionalizing women's rights post-war. Uh, so all the arguments that have come up in women, peace and security and really sort of emphasizes why these are so critical and what it is that we stand to lose if we don't really take uh, women's participation seriously over time. So you're currently involved in a collaboration with Folke Bernadotte Academy and the UN Women on uh, Women, Peace and Security. And that's one thing that I love about PRIO is like uh, people are involved in so many other organizations and, and collaborations and um, things like that. So can you just tell us first a little bit about that work that you've been doing? Yeah, and, and I think that really is very much connected to to the call for the for the gender data revolution. I was really, really happy when I heard that since that's something I worked on for the last 10 years. Uh, and in my previous role at the Falkenbanner Lot Academy, I had this uh, uh, working group with international researchers that have very much uh, a, a systematic statistical or, or also complemented with good qualitative uh, research that can really help us move forward. And that included, for example, Ismeni Yaselis, but also researchers from PRIO, such as Henrik Udal and Ragnar Nordås, and also Derek Cohen and Kyle Beardsley and many other international researchers. So uh, in January, I was really glad to uh, join with Mimi Söderberg-Kovac and Sofia Vrede, who handle the research groups at FBA. Uh, so we collaborated with UN Women to do a policy research dialogue uh, in New York on women, peace and security. And as a result of that collaboration, we will soon be publishing a joint uh, policy series uh, of policy briefs uh, with researchers from the group. So that will include just to have like a commercial once I have the, uh, do a commercial once I now have the opportunity. Uh, for example, <laughs> to do by Ismene Yesialis on peacekeeping dividends and uh, women's health and education, and also by Jana Krause on gender equality, masculinity, and communal conflict. And also by uh, Jackie True, who uh, used to be a global fellow, or I think is a global fellow here at Creo, together with Erin Bjarnegård and Erik Melander on masculinity and extremism. Uh, I also do a project related, uh, or, or a brief related to a project I have with Uppsala, but here I collaborate with uh, Mara Yoshi and Josefina Alvarez at the Koch Institute 
uh, at the University of Notre Dame, where we focus on the uh, issues related to gender provision implementation. So that, that's really our commercial. You should keep your eyes open. They will be released uh, in a few weeks. And we really hope they'll then contribute to this uh, gender data revolution. That's awesome. I feel like we could have a, a podcast episode about every single one of the things that you just, just mentioned. That's such a dream yeah. team of researchers. Absolutely. It's a fantastic <laughs> I, I really, because I've been editing all of them. So I've learned a lot uh, in this process of just a really new hot, off, hot topic uh, data that is coming out. And uh, and also the study that I mentioned by Desiree Nilsson and Isaac Svensson will also be part of the series. Mm. So uh, the whole reason I really wanted to talk to you, and this is, I tend to be a little bit selfish with podcast episodes because I tend to pick things that I'm interested in and everyone else has to listen to them, but um, was to talk about the the Security Council and specifically uh, women, peace, and security agendas in the Security Council uh, in the past with Sweden and now possibly, probably, um, with Norway. So you're currently leading a research project on the role of elected members in the Security Council promoting implementation of re- resolutions on women, peace, and security. And you've specifically looked at Sweden's experiences. So first, could you start by telling us like how you actually study the role of elected states in the Security Council? But also, what could we learn about uh, Sweden's work in the Council, uh, possibly then projecting forward to Norway? Yeah, uh, so the, the project that you mentioned is the uh, Prio Uppsala University collaboration that involves uh, co-project leader Angela Mumba-Selström and also then Patty Chang, Torun and also Peter Wallenstein. So for me, it felt, uh, if, if I should also get a little bit uh, sentimental, it was actually very fitting to do this at the 20th anniversary uh, period because it's the first time I actually came into contact both with discussions that was to feed into what was become 1325 and actually with PRIO and Norway's work uh, in this area was a project funded by the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, back in 1999, 2000. Um, so there uh, we actually got to collaborate with the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York to, to do a research review and, and to, to really try to assist um, the process of, of developing policy and working with gender in peacekeeping. And uh, this then had a final workshop in Vinduk where the Windhoek Declaration was adopted, which then Namibia actually took to the UN to get it adopted as a, a UN policy. And then, of course, as we all know historically, they went on to, to lead the open debate and the adoption of Resolution 1325. So it was a very interesting to be part of that uh, initial discussion and, and sort of hear the needs and, and the frustrations, I would say, of those that were part of really pushing this forward. Uh, and in this context, I also met uh, Inger and Torun for the first time because they were, uh, Norway was equally uh, concerned that, you know, we weren't moving forward fast enough on this. Mm. And so they were just on the way into the council in 2001. So it's sort of the, the setup and the context for, for doing this project is actually quite uh, uh, similar. And Norway is, MFA has also funded uh, this project. So what we do in terms of studying elected members, because now if, if it early on was a question of, of states like Sweden and Norway, like pushing the normative development and, and sort of trying to, to, to get momentum, it's very much now a question of moving towards how can we push for more concrete implementation to really translate this into concrete action, which was very much the calling of, of the 20th uh, celebrations in terms of you know, moving from, from rhetorics to, to actual action, as I think the Secretary General said. So what we then tried to do as a starting point was to, to 
see what, what does it mean for an elected state to then try to influence the, this uh, implementation of WPS in, in core council business, as, as Sweden coined it. Uh, so the Security Council is, I mean, the highest decision-making arena internationally. So they have a very high tempo, high workload. It's a very harsh climate. Um, and they produce two kinds of outcomes. And when you listen to it described in media, for example, it doesn't sound that impressive. They produce words primarily, so resolutions, statements, etc. Uh, and they also have to negotiate all of these words. And if you are then an elected member, that means that you are one out of 10 elected states. So you know, your impact on each uh, resolution text will be limited to begin with. And also, you will be contending with five other states who are in the council permanently have the long-term perspective and also have veto powers. So you sort of start from a, a, a position where you sort of have to, to choose your words well, to, to put it mildly. <laughs> but if you then manage to actually get action-oriented, concrete language that, that really targets the core problems in conflict areas around the world, you will actually have an impact on, on the people in these areas and also have responsibility for the personnel that UN sends out to, to help assist in, in these uh, very difficult situations. There's always someone at the receiving end, even if it's words, there's always someone's reality at the receiving end of decisions and non-decisions. So what we are then trying to study is to see, so how do elected states, given the fact that they have a shorter time period, how do they assess opportunities? How do they strategize and maneuver in this really harsh climate in order to move forward in terms of then really getting more concrete language in that they think will help resolve the problems on the ground uh, in areas around the world. So in terms of how Sweden did this, I mean, I'm not going to try to do justice to, to what they did. It was really intense and, and a very impressive uh, effort. Uh, so let me just give you some preliminary examples of what we have found uh, so far. So first, I think that it demonstrated the importance of building on opportunities. So Sweden came into the council after the 15th anniversary. So there was a need for integration, for better information, civil society briefers, all of that was sort of the, the groundwork had been laid for having a, a joint understanding that that was needed. Uh, the second thing I think that became very visible in, in our data, and we have about, I think, 250 hours of, of interviews and, and a data set of resolutions on this time period, um, is also that how credibility and building on one's own profile as an elected member really mattered. Uh, and Sweden had a long history, just like Norway, of working on gender equality, both nationally and internationally. And also with the feminist foreign policy, it was very credibly evident, I think, to many states that Sweden really tended to or wanted to and intended to push WPS uh, when they were in the council. So it was a credible effort uh, that they put into WPS to, to begin with. And thirdly, I think Sweden really managed to capitalize on that in terms of working to, to with the system, to, to mend the working methods, uh, to improve information, to work with the institutions to really get WPS integrated. I think one of the problems with moving towards implementation is the fact that uh, WPS often tend to be sidelined or marginalized. It's discussed in, in a separate forum. And then when you actually go and discuss the same topic, uh, but uh, uh, in the general forum, you sort of exclude WPS. That, that's just like a separate discussion. So we really made an effort to try to integrate that in the in the everyday business of the council in, in the core decision-making processes. 
Mm. And I think they did that also in a way that uh, was very clever because they they had a signal tied on early on. I think that Margaret Walsam also said, you know, they were going to ask where are the women. And they did that consistently. But what they also did is connect that to each specific debate. So it was context relevant WPS aspects that were then brought up in, in the statements. So even if the states knew or could predict that Sweden would say something on WPS very often, they didn't know exactly what was going to come up. And I, I think that both made states pay more attention. And it seems like it can also help in terms of explaining what WPS implementation really meant in practice. So I think it sort of contributed to that capacity building, which we also know from research is really necessary. And I think that uh, we can't really say if, if it worked or if it didn't work, but because we don't have a long time series again of data. But what we can say is that uh, um, the percentage of WPS language in resolutions, it did increase from the latter half of 2017. Sweden were in the council 17 to 18. And mm. also all the resolutions that Sweden really focused on, uh, which were related on peace operations and missions, these are the most frequently discussed resolutions, and also they have the highest uh, percentage or volume of WPS references. So I think that's a very researchy way of saying that uh, using these indicators, it does seem that uh, the Swedish strategy worked. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems so. I was wondering just quickly before I go to my next question, could you just tell me a little bit more about some of your methods? I mean, um, doing this research, uh, P- obviously not revealing your sources per se, but do you talk to people? Do you look into documents? How much access do you have to those things? And um, I mean, is it is it a lot of primary sources like that? Or how exactly do you do that? I mean, obviously you can look at the wording of the resolutions themselves, which are public, but um, what other kind of sources and methods do you use? Yeah, we used a combination of... of uh, so we interviewed... Uh, we were, and I should say that upfront, we really got very much support from the Swedish and the Norwegian uh, Ministry for Foreign Affairs in, in, in mm. really conducting the studies. So we are really grateful for that. Uh, so we interviewed both Sweden's sort of personnel from the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs up to, to the foreign minister level. Uh, we also then interviewed other categories of uh, uh, personnel. So we interviewed other member states, we interviewed NGOs, we interviewed also. Uh, the UN Secretariat. Uh, so to, to get a sort of a, a, a broader picture, both in terms of what does it mean to work as an elected state and, and also how were Sweden's efforts perceived and what were pros and what were cons as, as sort of external viewers saw it, to try to get this broader uh, picture. Uh, and then we also drew on evaluations and, and studies and also internal working material from the MFA to get a really good sort of try to get a good grip on sort of what does it mean to do this on, on a more detailed level. And then mm-hmm. we compare those outcomes with the uh, uh, the language in resolutions. So Paddy Chang coded uh, resolutions from 2016 before Sweden came in and up to 2019 when Sweden had left to, to get a, a sort of a feeling for what, what happened uh, during their time in the council. Uh, and uh, there we actually look at three components. Um, so we look at both, are there WPS terms at all in resolutions? If there are uh, language, is it very generic or is it more sort of action oriented? So is it connected to something that, you know, because this is very much also about, so the UN Security Council is 
like a political arena. And then, of course, you have the secretariat, which is more like a bureaucratic arena. So they have to translate these political works into action for it actually to have an effect on the ground. Mm. So is the language and resolutions possible for the bureaucracy to translate to action? And in that way, is it then also possible for states in the council to follow up what actually happened with that word? Was it prioritized, etc.? So we, we try to, to combine these sources to get both the external view and the internal work uh, of, of Sweden. So that, that's how we worked with the method. So we developed a model for, for studying uh, this. And I think also what really came out of this, that the Sweden's very strategic and, and sort of thought through uh, plans in terms of how it worked for this was also very useful for research in terms of identifying structures and indicators that we can use to study also other elected members. So it was really a very, very uh, interesting project to do. And, and I, I was very impressed, I have to say. I, I know I'm partial because I'm Swedish, but I was very impressed <laughs> how they worked. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds extremely interesting and uh, hopefully can give us some indicators um, toward what Norway could do. So that'll be my, my next uh, question that I want to ask you is, Norway, of course, will be a member of Security Council starting January 2021. So it's fast approaching. Yeah. And um, Norway has clearly stated that, that it will promote the implementation of Resolution 1325. And we heard that as well last week in the discussion that, that you were part of as well with uh, Ina Eriksson Sore, the Norway's foreign minister, and Mar- Margot Wallström from uh, Sweden. Uh, so kind of... Uh, two, first of all, amazing, amazing politicians, amazing women um, meeting to, to to discuss this. And it was obvious that this is extremely important to both of them and important to both Norway and Sweden. So what do you think uh, Norway can do based on the findings from your project? And maybe what do you think we can expect to see? Yeah, I, I think... Uh... I think Norway can do many things, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing them uh, in action. I think um, using our models, if we start with, for example, opportunities, so the 20th anniversary, I, I think, uh, so both potential for progress for Nor- that Norway could, could really capitalize on and support, and I think also potential sort of increased contentions and, and, and uh, possible outright battles on WPS. So if we start with the latter, that might sort of be where, where Norway would need to have a, a, a role of sort of preserving what has been uh, achieved, sort of to work with other states to, to really uphold the current uh, normative framework, is that the battle lines we see now are really being drawn, and they are being drawn in the area of sort of what, what is their political support for implementation. So the, the normative framework is extremely broad, but what we are seeing is, is sort of um, almost outright limitations in terms of what can then be implemented. Uh, so the first that came up was related to um, uh, sort of sexual rights and reproductive rights, where we, we clearly saw a, a, a struggle in starting in 2019. And now with the, the events that took place during the, the anniversary, I think what came out there was also sort of attempts at least to limit uh, implementation regarding women's participation, civil society's role, but also related to prevention of sexual violence. So really striking at the very core of the WPS resolutions. So I think Norway, I mean, we're speaking also of profiles. I mean, Norway has a, a, a very well-recognized and high-level profile on, on mediation and negotiation skills. And, and it might be that 
those will come in uh, handy uh, in, in relation to that. In terms of opportunities of progress, I think that the composition of the council uh, have more states perhaps than, than ever that has really proclaimed that WPS is a core priority. Uh, Sumita Basu in her research, she shows that this is actually a trend that more and more states really take this as a political priority. And so in addition to Norway and all the incoming members, Mexico, Ireland and Kenya has all proclaimed that this is part of their priorities. Um, and in addition to that, we also see that permanent members such as the UK and France are also really moving up their positions on this. And with the change in the US administration, it might be that there's quite a, a strong alliance for moving forward on WPS uh, in, in the future. So, and I think another thing that, that really speaks to, to an area uh, where you could uh, see potential for, for progress and, and where Norway is very well situated to, to contribute, I think that we're also seeing an increase sort of organizational capacity on, on how you work within peace and security. Um, so moving sort of to move towards more action-oriented language, to have dialogues with senior leaders, to, to make sure that they translate this language into action on the ground and, and what their lessons learned are for, for if this language worked or if it needs to be revised, I think. So, and, and I think what has also helped uh, in this regard is that um, many military and police organizations around the world are now also working on WPS and gender equality, uh, which means that they will also have capacity to, even if it's not possible to work towards more action-oriented language, because there are so many contentions in the council, it could still be that these organizations are able to, to turn even more generic language into concrete actions. And there, Norway, which with a very high capacity on WPS, can be a very good partner in discussing and, and following up uh, on that. So, for example, the Nordic Center in, uh, on military operations, on gender and military operations, they released um, a guide on women, peace, and security for senior military leadership just last week uh, as well. Mm. So, I, I think that the, the, those are sort of areas where, where Norway can really, really make a very strong uh, contribution. Yeah, and you've talked a little bit, uh, touched a little bit on the composition of the council, um, but just for listeners who don't know. So there are the five permanent members, the US, France, the UK, China, and Russia. And then uh, the elected members that Norway will be on the council with are Estonia, Vietnam, uh, Niger, Tunisia, uh, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines, along with Ireland, India, Kenya, and Mexico. Um, is Are there any of those countries that uh, stand out to you in terms of partnerships? Uh, I, I think, as I mentioned, I mean, Ireland, Mexico and Kenya are, are very clear on, on, on wanting to, to move forward on WPS. So I think uh, that would be a, a key partners, I'm sure. And also, I think with India, we saw that they much supported the, there was a resolution put forward by Indonesia, uh, 2538, that had a focus on women's participation in peacekeeping. That was actually not classified as a women's peace and security resolution. That was actually adopted under a peacekeeping debate. Uh, but okay. there, there, India was a very strong supporter on there. So I, I think there will probably be opportunities to work together on moving forward on women's uh, participation in peacekeeping uh, with India as well. Mm. Well, it seems pretty clear from uh, from everything you said that Norway certainly can make a difference in the Security Council. I think a lot of people feel very pessimistic when they talk about the Security Council precisely because of the five permanent members and uh, their power. But 
it, it sounds like Sweden accomplished a lot and, and Norway definitely has uh, a way forward. So in conclusion, I just wanted you to think a bit more broadly for me. Uh, what do you think are some new ways forward in terms of women, peace and security, uh, the agenda, the resolution itself, um, and so on? I mean, both in Norway, but also just internationally. Uh, and I know that you're the coordinator of the gender research group. So, uh, how, yeah, how do you see this both in research, but also implementation? Well, I think that there were a lot of opportunities and interest and, and debate that really came out over the 20th anniversary. So I think there are ample opportunities. Uh, and uh, I've also been very impressed by how the, the Centers on Gender, Peace and Security has really shown how our research can contribute to that debate. And I also did a, a review of research at PRIO when I started as the coordinator. And, and I think also PRIO can contribute in, in many ways to many other questions discussed, such as for example, the WPS index that measure different aspects of gender equality and, and, and women's status and, and also puts that in the context of, of security and, and armed conflict. I think that, that is a fantastic source. I think that uh, the work that Priyo does on peace agreement implementation, which is an area where we see that there is a lot of emphasis because even for a long time we focus on negotiations uh, and then uh, uh, manage to get writings on women's rights and, and sort of so-called gender provisions that focus on sort of promoting gender equality post-war into peace agreements. But when we look at, for example, the fantastic work the Croc Institute has done on, on measuring the implementation in Colombia, we can see that those provisions really struggle. So I, I think there is an area where, where PRIO could also be very well placed uh, to contribute. Also in terms of demoralization of soldiers, and technology norms and, and also migration. I think those are areas that will remain uh, much debated on WPS. So I think PRIO is really well placed uh, to do that. I also think, I hope that we see even more of this sort of policy research collaboration, particularly, and now I'll go back to the, the call for the gender uh, data and, and also the, the exchange policy to, to research. So two examples to conclude that uh, I'm personally involved in. One is the a project by DCAF in Geneva, together with Sabrina Karim and, and Laura Huber at Cornell University, so which is the Measuring Opportunities for Women in Peace Operations uh, project, which is under the LC initiative, which Canada uh, uh, instituted, but Norway is a strong supporter of. And that focuses then on, on how do we actually move forward on increasing the number of women in peacekeeping. So when I started, as I said, in, in 1998-99, there was targets set up and oh now we're going to increase the number of women in military and police and and very little happened they remained at three to four percent over the last 20 years so it's been a very very slow progress so what we see now is actually a more push to actually come to terms with this and where research really play a very central role so this uh, this project looks at creating two things one is sort of high quality and comparable data across several countries so senior leaders and, and organizations can actually have dialogues on, on how can we then learn from each other on how to move forward. So other states than Norway that are involved is Ghana, UK, Uruguay, Zambia, sort of all collecting the same kind of information that, that I think will really ease the dialogue. In addition to that, they also do like national uh, produce nationally relevant material. So sort of coming to Norway, what, what does the method what will that say on, on how Norway can, can move even more targetedly 
in the country to, to move forward. So it looks at factors such as organizational culture, social roles, deployment criteria, to really provide sort of a, a, a basis for, for uh, really targeted actions. And the second uh, project is actually one I'm involved in in Sweden, and that looks at women, peace and security in a Swedish national defense and security context, which was fascinating and, and actually quite a bit more difficult than I, I thought starting out. Because it raised a lot of new questions regarding participation and protection. So looking at, at the Swedish context, sort of participation in a, in a democratic context with a lot of sex disaggregated data, you can actually then study attitudes to uh, inclusion at the population level. And what I found there was that, uh, and, and research from Gothenburg also shows, is that a substantial part of women in Sweden are actually quite uh, insecure and, and sort of not following the debate on national defense or security. So I think that is another area on participation we need to discuss more. There are also quite substantial differences in resilience and, or and preparedness for crisis between men and women uh, in Sweden, where gender roles play a key role. So I think it, it raises a lot of new questions. So I think both of these exemplified projects is a trend that I think we're going to see more also now that unfortunately the international security climate is really harshening also in, in, uh, in our area is that women, peace and security really comes into our homes. It's not only a question of a national action plan focusing outwardly, it's also very much about our own national defense and security. So in that way, 1325, I think, will concern all of us in our everyday lives. Now, I'm, I'm partial, but I think that's a really uh, interesting and important uh, way forward as well. Mm. Well, it certainly sounds like although we've made some progress, there's a long ways to go. And I'm looking forward to continuing to see your research and the research with our partners uh, as time yeah. goes on, and especially with Norway and the Security Council. Yeah, that will be really, really interesting. I'm also very much looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Louise. Thank you, Ingo. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. Tune in tomorrow to hear the discussion from our November 9th celebration of 1325 with Louise Olsen, Torin Tregestad, Ina Eriksen Sørreide, and Margot Wallström. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hauger. Music by Martin Rennemold.